Hi, Kevin. Good to have you here. Hi, Jenny. It's good to be here. Um, I think, I mean, personally, I think you're one of my smartest friends, uh, and I'm really happy to be able to do this interview with you so that the Sweetie Heels 2020 audience can get to know you a little bit more. Um, so we first met at, at a gathering of Renaissance Weekend, which is an interesting group of people who love intellectual and deep conversations. Yes, it is. And, and I felt like I discovered a treasure when I met you and, and we started talking about stem cells and how they can uh, revolutionize the future of healthcare and what you're doing. And then obviously over time, I started to discover your life journey. Um, so I wanna go back, you know, dialing, dialing back the clock a little bit and just to sure. talk about maybe how your earlier life impacted, you know, where you are today. Um, you know, you're trained as a e e economist and then a lawyer, but then you decided to start Osseum Health. That's right. So tell us that journey. You know, when I was a kid, I spent uh, a lot of time with my grandparents. Probably, I went to school in, in Nashville with my parents, but every summer, every long weekend, I was uh, on my grandparents' farm in West Tennessee. When I was born, they were in their 50s and they ran the farm themselves. By the time I graduated from high school, they were in their 70s and I watched their health deteriorate rapidly uh, during that time. Uh, frequently, I would see them getting sick when I was in high school, I would drive them to the hospital and I would notice that they would get retroactively prescribed some treatment that would reduce their suffering, but not really restore their health. And I would ask, you know, why can't we anticipate what's gonna make you get sick beforehand? Why aren't we really restoring you to the level of health and vitality you were at before, as opposed to just treating your symptoms? And the answer that I got was, well, that's just not uh, how medicine works. And I never really accepted that, um, but that was the reality of, of the time. And so when I got, uh, you know, I, I always had a, a love of science, but it was really physics uh, that uh, inspired me most. Uh, trying to, uh, I, that the idea that the universe was governed by these mathematical laws that we could write down that govern the entire cosmos, uh, which is very uh, captivating to me. And so I went to MIT and I, I, I started off focused entirely on physics and I added the economics major, as you point out. Um, by graduation because I realized I didn't want to be a professor. And as far as I could tell, the one application for astrophysics was becoming a professor. Uh, I thought I might want to do something in business one day, but wasn't sure what, and so economics seemed like a flexible enough uh, addition. Um, when I, uh, by my senior year, I'd finished the course requirements for both majors, and I uh, was looking to just do something different. And there was an agreement uh, between MIT and Harvard where any school, any student at one school could take pretty much any class at the other. So I signed up for constitutional law at Harvard Law School because eh, why not? It wasn't physics or economics, it was different. And I, <laughs> and I, and I loved it actually. Uh, it was basically uh, an applied uh, philosophy class and something about the idea that cases that were decided centuries ago could have an impact on the decisions that we made here in today's world. I found that uh, as captivating as I found the idea that the universe was governed by these laws that we could just, uh, that we could cap write down and comprehend. And so I ended up, uh, you know, uh, going to the law school because why not? Uh, and so I, <laughs> I spent, uh, so, you know, by my uh, second year though, I was pretty sure that I didn't want to actually practice law because I had interned at a couple of law firms and 
Um, it turned out that the study of law was more intellectually stimulating than the practice of it. And so I'm getting, um, by my third year of law school, I'm like, well, okay, I didn't want to be a physicist and I don't want to be a lawyer. I really should figure out what I'm, I'm going to do. Uh, and uh, I had a, a friend who had recently gone to uh, Bridgewater to do, uh, as an investment associate, just managing uh, global, global macroeconomic investment. Um, the idea that there were these general, we called them timeless and universal principles of markets that also determined uh, that we could use to anticipate how markets would move and behave, I thought was very exciting. And this was only a few years after the global financial crisis. And so a lot of those economic factors and their impact on our world were sort of top of mind. Uh, so I did that. Uh, I was there for a few years and I enjoyed it. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, as an investor, uh, as intellectually interesting as a lot of the work was and as meaningful as it was to our clients, uh, our job was to take in wealth from institutions that were already very rich and make them even richer. And I thought, okay, well, when I'm 90 years old, looking back at my life, is this what I want to have done with it? And I thought, okay, well, probably not. Uh, and so I thought back to the experience I'd had with my grandparents growing up and some of the dislocations I saw in the healthcare ecosystem then. And, uh, you know, a lot had changed in sort of the, the 20 years between when I was driving my grandparents to the hospital and when I was uh, doing uh, investment um, in the, the Northeast. One of them was that um, there was a pretty meaningful change, I would say, in our, our understanding and our, of and our ability to engineer biology. When I was a kid, I, to me, I'll be honest, science meant physics. I thought of biology as like stamp collectors. Uh, but um, that, had, that had profoundly shifted uh, in those uh, two decades. And suddenly it was very interesting. And, and also I thought uh, there was um, an increasing amount of, of tension. I would argue much of the conflict we've had uh, between regions of the country and, and classes and political parties over the last decade has boiled down to this fact that we have not yet reached a national consensus on how to pay for our rising healthcare costs. And uh, I believe that human beings are better at science than we are at politics. And I think if we could find proactive uh, regenerative therapeutics that would enable us uh, to have people spend, to spend less time, you know, treating severe symptoms people have had at all, that's an approach to reducing the cost of healthcare. And so all these things had me really thinking about uh, the field. And so um, during my last, uh, and so I ended up leaving Bridgewater, coming to the West Coast to work at uh, McKinsey and uh, doing some, you know, uh, biotech and pharma consulting, among other things. Uh, working with a nonprofit that was doing um, organ preservation uh, and looking at doing organ printing and just, you know, learning, uh, immersing myself in the field and thinking about what impact that could have on it. And it was that thought process that ultimately led to founding Aussie. One thing, Kevin, I, I, I realize about you is you're definitely a big idea thinker. Uh, you know, you're actually someone who really are actively thinking how to change the world. And and also have a, a grand vision of what the world is, you know, how the world is changing and what is impacting us. Now, let's, let's focus a little bit on, on ASEAN Health itself. Tell us a little bit about the company. What does it do? And how do you envision ASEAN Health to change the world? So every year around the United States, there are about 150,000 people that are diagnosed with indications that in principle could be treated with a bone marrow transplant. This is pretty much 
almost any disease of the blood or immune system in principle can be treated this way. Um, we actually perform about 10,000 bone marrow transplants in the United States each year. And there are many reasons for the disparity between those two numbers, but one of them is the shortage of bone marrow that's available. Today, you have to find a healthy, living, and often unrelated person and get them to agree to have their bone marrow sort of aspirated uh, for, to save a, a cold stranger. Um, and so because of that, we sort of reserve the procedure for really extreme cases, typically uh, people uh, with leukemia who have who exhausted all of their options. Um, and so I, before uh, starting uh, Osseum, had spent some time working in uh, trying to figure out how to do better uh, long-term preservation of human organs and tissues. And so I had quite a bit of exposure just through some nonprofits and so I had some exposure to the uh, solid organ transplant ecosystem, which is mostly deceased donors. About 80% of all organ transplants in the U.S. are from deceased donors. And a thing that I thought was interesting as I started thinking about bone marrow as well, with organ preservation, one of the major issues, with organ transplants, one of the major issues we have is that we can't even use all the organs we have because we can't preserve them long enough. Bone marrow is a tissue that can be cryopreserved indefinitely. You can freeze bone marrow for decades, thaw it later and transplant it effectively. And yet there was still this massive shortage. And one of the reasons for that was that we weren't recovering bone marrow from deceased donors. Um, and um, largely because there was nowhere to put it and you know there wasn't a good infrastructure for it. And so I thought to myself, well, you know, this, every time someone dies, just because we couldn't get access to the bone marrow that was necessary to save them, um, that's a human life being lost because of a logistical problem. That shouldn't happen. I think we can fix that. And so that's what really got us thinking about Osseum. And one of the things that really made the idea take off uh, was that there's a couple of other areas of research that were uh, maturing, they're coming into maturity at just the right time. So. Um, you know, the basic idea is recover bone marrow from deceased organ donors, uh, freeze it, uh, you know, do some, some testing and evaluation on it, make sure it's good, it's healthy, it's sterile, get the HLA type of the donor, and then use it for transplant later. One of the things, though, that's really powerful about it is that um, because all of our donors are organ donors, uh, it means that there's an opportunity to provide bone marrow to the organ recipients. And you might wonder why we would do that. Well, you know, organ rejection is, is a major limitation on ultimately the, the safety and efficacy of an organ transplant. So most, um, almost everyone who gets an organ transplant is on immunosuppressants for the rest of their life. Um, the first problem with this is that many of these organs are ultimately rejected anyway. About half of all solid organs are rejected within, uh, within 12 years of the initial transplant. When that happens, often the recipient dies. If they survive, they go back on the organ transplant wait list for a second organ from a second donor. And even while they're on the, the, the pills people experience, um, they have a heightened risk of infection because their immune system is weakened and the pills are expensive. So it, if you do a, a bone marrow stem cell transplant from the organ donor to the organ recipient, it's possible to re-educate the recipient's uh, immune system to recognize cells from the donor your process that we call immune tolerance induction. Uh, and what this means is that uh, the bone marrow bank is not only a way of doing more treatments for people with hematologic malignancies, people with leukemia, for example, it's also a way of making organ transplant safer, more effective, longer lasting. And it's when we understood that we could combine these two applications that we really were motivated to, to launch Osteo Health. And so me and my 
my co-founder uh, and chief science officer, Eric Woods, launched the company uh, back in 2016. So um, the obvious applications now based on what you just told me is obviously bone marrow transplant, and then the second is to help the organ recipients to yeah. not having to be on immunosuppressant for a very prolonged period of time. So these are two huge benefits uh, that Asim could potentially produce. Um, now, this will be included in a part of cell therapy territory? That's right, or is, yeah. oh, Okay. Um, so our conference, 3D Heals 2020, coming up, have a very uh, large audience related to biofabrication, regenerative uh, medicine, mm -hmm. tissue engineering. Uh, does Alcium also offer any kind of byproducts or additional applications in these fields? Yeah, uh, we do, we do. So one of the advantages of recovering bone marrow from deceased donors is they don't, they don't need it anymore. And so we can recover far more, a much higher volume of cells from them than you would ever ethically take from a living donor. And so in the bone marrow itself, we get about fivefold the cell volume you would get from a typical living donor aspiration. And then also we don't just get the bone marrow, we actually get the, the bone itself from the, um, the organ procurement organizations. And then mesenchymal stem cells, for example, they're naturally, they're adherent to the bone. Uh, and we can enzymatically digest those uh, off of it and uh, get massive populations uh, of, of MSCs, uh, which are very useful in a variety of sort of regenerative medicine uh, applications and tissue engineering. And, and, and then again there, uh, we get more than, we get about a hundredfold the number of cells that you would ever get from a single living donor uh, using, uh, using these processes just for the MSCs. Uh, and so uh, they're vast. Uh, we have a tremendous bank uh, of cells that can be used for a huge range of different applications. And uh, I think, um, you know, now we've got, we have, uh, we have clinically ready, we have a GMP facility that we completed, um, that we initially built out in 2017 and just completed an expansion of to have more clean rooms uh, in January of this year. And uh, that facility is, is, is you know, is uh, sufficient to produce huge volumes of cells for, you know, essentially anyone who needs uh, MSCs for their um, applications that are clinical grade. Uh, let's see. We also recently filed a master file uh, with the FDA um, describing our process in detail so that anyone who has a clinical trial that they'd like to use uh, the cells in uh, can reference that uh, without uh, needing to, to get into the details of how the product is done and it'll be available to the FDA. Now, as you know, we're all quarantined at home uh, because of COVID-19. Um, and also very recently, I did an interview with Maya Sari Lim, uh, Dr. Lim from Rooster Bio, and she was saying that now there are actually increased innovation activities within the therapy side using mesenchymal stem cells. Yes. So I'm curious if you, you guys are also working on some kind of COVID-19 related solutions or potential collaborations or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, you really did uh, read my mind. Jenny. So, so, so you're right. We are. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, I think, um, you know, the, 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 the public health and the economic impact of the pandemic is so massive that I think essentially anyone who can do anything uh, to contribute to sort of our collective humanity's response to COVID-19 is doing so. And Osseum is no exception to that. So um, there are... Um, you know, knowledge about uh, the viruses sort of grows 
by the day. What we can say is that in people with severe cases of COVID-19, um, in particular uh, cases where people need to be put on ventilators, um, there is, um, well, maybe actually before I say that, you can sort of divide uh, therapeutics that address COVID-19 into a few categories. Uh, obviously, there's working on vaccines, which prevents you from getting the virus at all, which is terrific, and there's an enormous amount of work going on that. Uh, for people who already have it, there are antivirals that uh, are designed to um, uh, prevent the virus from proliferating throughout the body. They have some target with respect to the virus's ability to enter and spread throughout the cell and they address that. There's also quite a bit of work on that, and that's good. What we're doing is more uh, addressing uh, the body's response to the virus. And so, uh, one of the things we've seen is that in some patients, the immune system essentially overreacts to the presence of COVID-19 in the body and produces what's called a cytokine storm, um, which can do quite a bit uh, of damage uh, to the respiratory system. It's, there's a, a condition called uh, acute respiratory dysfunction syndrome or ARDS that COVID-19 causes that is uh, a cause of death for, for many, many uh, patients, especially those that ultimately need ventilators. And so MSCs uh, are known to modulate uh, immune function. And uh, there's some data that suggests uh, from prior studies of uh, ARDS and, and influenza and uh, treatments of pneumonia that MSCs may be helpful for that. And in fact, there are a number of companies that are working on uh, using MSCs to treat uh, early phase one clinical trials that are using MSCs to treat ARDS right now. And so um, we, you know, because we have access to huge numbers of these cells and because controlling for donor variability is, is very helpful, both in being able to treat more patients, to use cells at lower passages, uh, which generally improves functionality, as well as to, uh, uh, to better interpret the results of the study because there's less donor variability. All of those things are power of all those is improved uh, by having lots of cells from one donor. And so we are actually working on launching multiple uh, COVID-19 studies with investigators around the U.S. and we're providing cells to other groups that are doing studies using MSCs. Um, so that, you know, going forward, um, you know, our hope is that we find uh, effective uh, treatments for COVID-19 as rapidly as possible. But if we don't find it, it will not be because we didn't have enough uh, MSCs. I think that that is yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned something that's interesting, uh, donor control, so you know, decreased yeah. donor variability because you have a large amount of cells. But the other thing I think is interesting is you guys have a giant stem cell bank, in, essentially, or, or marrow bank, so which means you actually do have the variability if you want it. That's true. Yeah, that's, that, that's true. Um, and so it's sort of a, a best of both worlds. If you wanted a lot of cells from one donor, we can do that. But if you wanted a large number of different donors with specific characteristics. Uh, we could also provide that in both. And so it, it really does give, you know, investigators a level of optionality um, with respect to, you know, designing their, their treatments that didn't exist before. And it really changes the way you think about uh, doing these cell therapies. And that's what we want. We want to create a platform um, that people can use um, to be, um, to design cellular therapeutics that uh, could hope, we hope have a profound impact on health and not be constrained by either volume or, or you know, a variety of donors. That's, that's directly important. Yeah, I'm obviously very excited um, about you know, what Osseum Health can do either during or after this pandemic. Um, but I have a tough question for you. And, uh, but since you have such a, a, you know, a deep interest in philosophy and, 
and law um, and politics, perhaps, you want to just tell us what you think about the bioethical problems or issues that have, you know, people have raised about, you know, what you guys are doing, or maybe even in general, tissue engineering, cell therapy yeah. are facing. Yeah. Um, you know, so far, you know, because we're still a relatively young uh, company and still relatively small, we've not yet received any sort of direct uh, criticism related to us about any of what we're doing. And I think a lot of that, um, I, you know, historically, there was certainly some amount of pushback on uh, cellular therapeutics and on gene therapy even more so. You know, so one analogy that I like to think about is this. If you looked at the early days of solid organ transplant, some of the first kidney and liver and heart transplants were done, there was a public uproar against this. People literally said, no, this is Frankenstein stuff. This is unethical. Because for all of human history up until then, everyone had been born with their own organs, their own parts, and they lived with those yeah. parts. And suddenly you had someone taking you know, organs from one person and putting them into someone else. And that, uh, that disturbed people. It's, it felt very unnatural. Um, today, you would have a lot of trouble finding anyone who thought that doing an organ transplant to save someone's life was an ethical problem. But it took some time for, uh, it took some time for sort of our, our public understanding of what is ethical and what is not to adapt. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's always a couple of factors. I think part of what people are comfortable with is just, well, have they seen it before? Are they familiar with it? And then, and then there's a separate thing, which is that, okay, is this fundamentally improving the world and improving people's lives in some way? And when there was enough evidence that transplants really did save lives every day, the fact that they were previously unfamiliar, uh, you know, stopped influencing people's uh, decisions. And then, of course, they become familiar when you're doing them all the time. And so I think, you know, cell and gene therapies, you know, uh, appeared a generation or so after uh, sort of solid transplants did. And so we're still getting used to them. They're still entering the public psyche. But I think as we start to have real evidence, and actually, you know, um, when, when I think about COVID-19 and its impact, it may very well be that some of these cellular therapeutics are the most effective or some of the most effective treatments for people who already have the disease. And I think it could be that seeing thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people um, ultimately saved from this life-threatening disease by these treatments, that may have the same effect on people's view of cell therapies that successful heart transplants had in their view of transplantation in the past. Um, and so I, I do think that they'll not only be accepted, but embraced, and that the people who are at the forefront of this, this field are, are really doing a heroic work. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, even if we, um, well, first of all, it's, it seems like that virus impacts multiple organs. So we don't really know what the long-term implications are. And two is, even if the, you know, sort of therapy, cell therapy, either from Osseum or other companies, didn't really deliver what people were hopeful, I think it actually shed a different kind of light on the technology in general, you know, as opposed to looking at it with a, a very, a lot of fear, yeah. but instead we're actually trying to really look at it as a tool, right. um, just like the fire, electricity, and all that, to try to improve humanity in yeah. a way. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kevin, for the interview today. I hope you stay safe. I'm looking forward to hear you more at the conference in June um, and looking forward to more good news from ASEAN Health. Uh, thank I you. Look forward to it as well.